justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo, and with my co-host Scott Henson, we're Reasonably Suspicious. Since our last podcast, the nation, and really the world, has erupted in protest after George Floyd, who was born and raised in Houston, died in the street in Minneapolis with a police officer's knee on his neck. Texas witnessed protests everywhere in the state, including places like Texarkana, Amarillo, Tyler, Hondo, and Jasper, where protest movements had mostly bypassed during the civil rights era. Scott, did you participate in any protests? You know, considering this was the most important social uprising in America in the last 50 years, and that it directly confronted issues I've been working on my entire adult life, you would really think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> but instead, because I'm COVID high risk after my cancer treatment, I spent the whole time holed up inside my house and following what happened online. I felt a lot like a Beyonce super fan who missed the big concert to attend your aunt's birthday. <laughs> right? no. just, just a little little anticlimactic there. But better safe than sorry. And, and I get lots of input on these topics anyway between the blog and this podcast. I, I don't feel like I need to take to the streets to be heard. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think you do a great job of raising your voice. <laughs> don't, don't need to go outside and yell. Yeah, no, not right now. Among the Texas-based stars of recent police protests was the Austin Justice Coalition and its leader, Chaz Moore, a longtime friend of the podcast. Scott spoke to Chaz recently about the historical import of recent events and what newly energized activists in Texas should do to get engaged. Let's give it a listen. The last month has witnessed this massive upheaval surrounding policing, and probably objectively the largest social movement in America in 50 years. From your perspective, what's changed in the last month and what hasn't? Talk to me about the politics of the moment. I think the, the, the biggest change has been just the conversation around policing, right? You know, I, I think people, um, of course, like you, that, that has been at the forefront of, you know, the, the need for police reform and, and the need for police accountability as well as the need for how we even think about policing in today's society. Um, and then, you know, people like me who's been around um, in, in my, you know, only 32 years of living, you know, we, we've been having these conversations around police reform and the need to, to, to change police and police tactics and, and things of that nature. But now, you know, it's a, it's a national conversation that, Everybody is a part of, well, not everybody, but a very large percentage of Americans are leaning in um, around the conversation, dealing with, you know, if we even need police to go to every call, if we need police at non-criminal calls. Um, and then, of course, the, the conversation around um, the, the, the allocation of funds for policing, right? Like, you know, from Austin to California to New York, everybody is... You know, seemingly um, now very tuned in to uh, critically looking at these massive police budgets. Um, I, I, I don't think there's a city in America where, you know, the, the police budget is not substantially larger than other aspects of public safety and, and well-being. Um, so that has changed um, 
almost drastically in a matter of weeks. But what hasn't changed is, you know, often being a prime example, you look at the city ordinances that passed um, two or three weeks ago where city council, you know, really came out and, and did some, some, key, some key and very important things when it comes to um, banning chokeholds and, you know, uh, you know, setting um, parameters to make sure we get to, you know, zero police deaths by, I believe, 2023. Um, and then you look at, you know, and then, and then you look at the day after, right? Like an APD officer has a guy on the ground and he's in a chokehold or his hand is, um, you know, very violently around his neck while his face is on the ground. Um, so, the so all those conversations. Said we, oh, we don't do that. Here, but. Oh, absolutely right. With, with the with the newfound black activist group, um, you know. So so while we're having these conversations around defunding police and um, you know reallocating not only resources around policing but the roles and responsibilities of, of police, and then while we still you know try to have reforms and policies in place to make sure uh, we can hold bad officers accountable, we're still seeing you know police and state sanctioned violence, uh, you, you know, whether it's against protesters or people just because they're black in like Atlanta or, or Houston, you know, so it's very much still the same, right? Which is which is very interesting, right? Like, it's like everybody uh, on a large percentage, again, of us are having this robust conversation around police reform and police direction, uh, or police uh, policing as we know it, heading into a new direction, um, except the police, right? Police are still out here being very much the same. So I, I think it just goes to show that although we're at a very unique time in American history, you know, we have a very, very long way to go. Right. I feel like, honestly, this project that this new social movement has begun is something that's actually going to take 10 years or more to accomplish. I mean, this is not something where you're just going to make a few changes in the budget and then it'll go away. Or we just fire a few officers and that'll solve it. This is a very big project. We didn't get here by just one law change, you know, or one bad Clinton crime bill. This was a death by a thousand cuts. It was hundreds and hundreds of bad laws passed over the course of many decades. And it's going to take quite a long time to roll it back. Even if everyone's acting in good faith and everyone's on board with the change agenda. And as you pointed out, the cops and the unions absolutely are not. So I do think a lot of the folks who've been protesting, especially those who just showed up to the issue, may not understand what an incredibly large task they've signed up for. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't even say that any better if I had the words presented in front of me. I just had to put them in order. But, yeah, you know, and I think, that's very important for people to understand, right? Like, even when we look at the huge win that happened in Oakland, I believe yesterday, you know, an organization called the BOP, um, the Black Organ, the Black Organizing Project, they have been fighting for um, a little bit more than a decade to get um, Oakland PD out of schools, right? So it just goes to show you that this is not going to be, you know, a six weeks or two day fight. Um, this is something that's going to take a very long time um, because just like you said, in Texas especially, right, we've, we've ramped up and provided, you know, law enforcement and the police departments um, so many protections and, and really loose accountability metrics through state legislation and even local policy 
um, that is going to take a very, very long time to roll back. So, you know, I hope people, um, as energized as they are when they have the protests and the rallies and the demonstrations, um, that they understand that this is definitely going to be um, a long haul. It's not, it's not going to be a quick battle. It's definitely a war. As you mentioned, I've been working on this stuff for quite a long time. And one of the things you notice is reinforcements come in waves. And for me, having done this for many years, after the Ferguson protests, there was a wave of reinforcements that showed up. And that's when you and Suki McMahon and the Austin Justice Coalition and all the good movement energy surrounding that organization all of a sudden was here. And really, I've said many times, it's just been a game changer locally in Austin. But I feel like one of the predictable things coming out of this last month is that there will be a new wave of leadership showing up now. And in Texas, we saw these police accountability protests, these Black Lives Matter protests, in parts of the state that have never witnessed anything like this. I mean, when you're talking about Deep East Texas, that's a place that the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s completely passed by. You know, they went the whole 1960s with no protests in Tyler or Lufkin or places like that. But they're seeing those protests now. Places like Texarkana or Hondo or Vider or Jasper, places that are mostly known for terrible racist incidents that occurred, had these significant protests. So there are these new leaders cropping up all over the state, especially in these towns outside the major cities that have never witnessed this kind of activism before. So if you were going to give advice to somebody in Texarkana, somebody in Amarillo, somebody who'd shown up at the protests or organized one, but they're in one of these towns where there's very little history of that type of work or existing activist groups to latch on to. What would be your advice to somebody in that situation? How should they proceed to try and make change in their community? <laughs> I mean, uh, I, guess, I think the first thing I would say is just, you know, uh, get comfortable. Because, um, again, it's going to be um, a long haul. Uh, and, you know, I can't even imagine the politics in, in, in like the small rural areas because um, like you said you know for a lot of those areas you know if you and I were to go there today um, it, it might feel like a, a time travel back in time because um, the, the wave of civil rights movement and the wave of Black Lives Matter and all these kind of massive movements seems to kind of gloss over um, those communities so on one hand while I'm extremely glad that people in those communities are getting engaged you, you know, it's not like Austin to where it's always been this, all those pseudo at times, um, this this liberal wave and this liberal will to do the, the progressive and right thing. The, the, the status quo um, is so firmly planted in, in a lot of those communities that it's going to take, um, I believe, quite some time to, to undo and unlearn and unpack a lot of the things that they need to do to kind of catch up to where we are um, in cities like Austin and Houston and Dallas. But what we do know is that if you stay consistent, if you stay persistent with your message and your cause, you, you can definitely um, invoke the change that you wish to see. Um, so, you know, it's just really all about organizing, making sure you know who the target is, whether it's city council or mayor, you know, whatever the form of government are in these smaller municipalities and, you know, just, just stay on course and, and, and you, you know, just fight the good fight. Is that any advice at all? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it is. 
I, I feel like in any political process, the advantage always lies with the people who show up, right? And the people who show up and do the work. In Austin, part of what happened was that the Austin Justice Coalition showed up and just began attending everything. Okay, there's a public safety committee that addresses these topics, then we're going to go there and hear every presentation and give our input. Oh, you have a meet and confer contract that's negotiated. We're going to show up at every negotiation session and listen and take notes and learn and make our own proposals. And I feel like every community has those types of opportunities, right? If you show up in any city council during budget season and listen to everything that's said and think critically about it, you're going to identify alternative ways of doing things that just aren't being proposed by, you know, the city manager or the police union. And there are processes where you can engage. Most people don't do that. Most people don't take advantage of those opportunities to participate in democratic governance. But they're built into the structure of, you know, how a city council works, how a county commissioner's court works. There are opportunities for public input. You can get to know your public, your public officials or your, the local media. You know, I'm sure before you launched into all this, you didn't know any politicians or any newspaper reporters or whatever. Now you know everyone in town. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think um, I also think that's very important because yeah, I, I think most Americans and most people around the world, because we're all, like, inundated with institutions and systems, have a bone to pick with said institution or said system and just want nothing at all to do with it. But um, the danger with that is, um, while, while I get that completely, you can't just sit idly by and let these systems that are, you know, like they don't have their ear to the street, right? Like they, they're not in the community. They're not feeling the oppression. They're not feeling the trickle down effects of the bad policy, you know, implementations or the bad, uh, the bad legislation. So it's kind of like a bully, right? Like, nobody likes a bully, but at some point you have to engage with that bully so, so you can get the bully off your back. This is a great interview. Good job, Scott. One of the most important takeaways, I think, is Chaz's point about being engaged, having a strategy, and sticking with it. Sort of that a lot of folks, particularly in protest movements, forget that it's important to have a target. You know, one stakeholder or maybe a handful of stakeholders that whose action you want to influence and to, to stay on that as opposed to berating people with a message and right. that there's a difference. Well, and that's especially true in the criminal justice system because it is such a tangle of interrelated government entities. You know, we have about 2,800 law enforcement agencies in Texas, mm-hmm. including 254 sheriff's departments and, you know, a couple of thousand police agencies. And then there's dozens of other agencies that get to have their own police force you would never even think of. The dental board in Texas has its own police force. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that, actually. It's, it's crazy. So there's, all, there's a list of about 30 different types of entities that get to have them. Every kind of school and university. But then even, like, weird little small special districts that you wouldn't think would need their own police or authorized to have them. And that's just on policing. 
you know, you police arrest someone, they take them to the jail. Well, that's controlled by a different entity. And mm-hmm. the county commissioner's court decides the funding for the jail, even though they don't operate the jail. And the judges, <laughs> and you know, make decisions about who stays locked up. And the, as soon as you get into it, it's this Byzantine array of institutional interests. And it's one thing to protest. It's another to devise a new system, a change in the system, that all those different moving parts are accommodated. Yeah, no, exactly. And so as an activist, your job is to really, you know, figure out what policy you want to change and then all of the collateral actors around that stakeholder that's making the change. And so your target is first the stakeholder and then other people who can influence them. And, and then rinse and repeat because there's many other stakeholders and, and, and everything that you change then influences other issues. Yeah. And Yeah, and if you do it right, every time you come into contact with a stakeholder, you're building a relationship that can be leveraged in future encounters. You're only going to get better and be more important the more you stay with it. Right, and that's what I really hope most out of this movement. I mean, I, as I said to Chaz, every time you see a big outpouring of reform energy, and this is the biggest we've seen you know, since the 1960s in America. Mm-hmm. This is the biggest social movement in America since the late 60s. And every time this happens, you see lots of new energy show up. We saw new energy show up in places that are mind-boggling. I mean, Mm -hmm. the idea that there's a couple of hundred people in Vider, Texas, who come to the Black Lives Matter rally is unbelievable. I mean, for Texas, that is a true game-changer. And so to the extent that anyone from areas like that really stays engaged and starts to actually intervene in local politics that's going to make an enormous difference and so we we need people to be stepping it up and taking it to the next level Mm -hmm. in all those places where they showed up once that's great and it's exciting that everyone showed up for this weird month-long protest event that just occurred in america Mm -hmm. but if you're not there a year from now if you're not there five years from now then we're going to lose that momentum and the status quo can just soak up all that energy and stay exactly like it is now which is sort of what it's designed to do you know yeah now it's time to play fill in the blank in which mandy and i each suggest different ways to finish the same sentence First up, as Mandy mentioned earlier, George Floyd was originally from Houston before he moved to Minneapolis several years ago. And reporting on his early years has revealed a remarkable coincidence. He was among the 160 people whom Harris County District Attorney Kim Ogg had sent a letter to say he may have been framed by a lying narcotics cop named Gerald Goins and could be eligible to have his conviction overturned. Goins, listeners may recall, lied on an affidavit to justify a raid on a Houston home last year that left the homeowners dead, four officers, including Goins, injured, and raised major questions about the state of narcotics enforcement in Houston. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. 
George Floyd had a blank relationship with law enforcement. Abusive. Um, it's, it's clear that there is a pattern of misconduct on the part of the police towards George. And sadly, I don't think it's that uncommon. Yeah, I'm going to go with cursed. <laughs> I, I, I think it, in, in retrospect it was a cursed relationship mm. and we learned so much after his death about his Houston years and George Floyd was a fascinating character and someone who wanted to do big things with his life wanted to change the world in second grade he wanted to be a Supreme Court justice mm. if you can imagine and um, when he was a young man in his 20s, he rapped on some of the albums from, from DJ Screw, who was an incredibly influential hip-hop artist in Houston. And he was trying big things, wanted to do big things, wanted to change the world. And it's ironic that the world drug him down, the world beat him down, but he's going to end up changing the world mm-hmm. in major, major ways. And... I, I find that to be an amazing story. Like it, it's 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 remarkable his life's path. Defunding police is a theme that grew out of the George Floyd protests, spawning widespread cause to reduce policing budgets and reinvest savings in social service-oriented solutions to problems like addiction, homelessness, and mental illness. City councils in Austin and Dallas have already indicated they would attempt this, but elsewhere the idea has received pushback. So Scott, fill in the blank. Defunding the police is... I'm going to go with, for now, aspirational. I know there are people out there who truly want to abolish the police. And, and you know, Chaz Moore, who we spoke to, is one of them. And there are very well-meaning people who, who use that slogan and, you know, actually mean it. But when you dig deep and, and talk to those folks, even they think that's something that can only happen at some point in the future. I mean, no one really imagines that we have all of the systems and services and institutions in place right now that would let you defund the police today. Mm-hmm. You know, I think defund the police is the thing that fit on the cardboard sign that you could take to the to the protest. Reduce police budgets and spend the savings on social service oriented approaches that would reduce crime doesn't fit on the <laughs> the, the piece of cardboard. Doesn't have the same ring. That's right. But when you're translating this into policy, that's what that's going to look like. So for me, I, I, I would prefer the terms like divestment and reinvestment. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's more accurate about what in the near term is going to be actually discussed and proposed at city councils. But, you know, again, that's never going to fit on the, the, the piece of cardboard. So I think I'm going to go with a game changer because this buy-in for this has moved the gold goalpost in police budgets and for everybody that's trying to push against law enforcement and oppressive practices very much um you know demonstrating that not only is there a consensus that we need to change the police but there are folks who believe that the system is so problematic 
that it needs to be abolished gives momentum to a push to, at a minimum, start really cutting back on law enforcement activity uh, and having police focus only on violent crime and, and open up a discussion about how much oppression is oppression as in like use of force by the government on the citizenry how much of that is appropriate when is that appropriate and like you said it's it's a work in progress it's going to take a long time for things to balance out and there really are huge swaths of what the police are doing that it would be easy to imagine someone else doing yeah the, the idea that the police are the front lines for dealing with addiction it's doesn't, ridiculous. doesn't make a lot of sense that they're first in line dealing with mental health crises in many situations causes more problems than it solves mm -hmm. that they're first in line with dealing with homelessness neither the police nor the homeless people like that <laughs> and so you know you can just go down the line and there's some things that probably still need to occur but but need to get moved out from under them. So, like, they don't they don't need to be in charge of forensics. Yeah. They probably don't need to be in charge of, of victim services. There's a lot of things that you don't need a badge and a gun to, to accomplish. And, you know, that, to me, is the import of this moment. Yeah. And, and I think the only thing that I'd add to that is, is sort of a reorientation of law enforcement and its mission and revisiting it and how like culture within departments that it really is one a public service and and two it has an obligation to protect everybody even even the people that are viewed as having engaged in criminal activity Numerous protesters around the state, including more than 50 in Fort Worth, were arrested on rioting charges during the recent protests. It appears most or all of these were later dropped by prosecutors. But Texas rioting statute was created in 1965, is written incredibly broadly, and was a product of Dixiecrat anti-civil rights sensibilities that don't make a lot of sense today. Under the law, a riot includes, quote, an assemblage of seven or more persons which substantially obstructs governmental functions or services, or physical action deprives any person of a legal right or disturbs any person in the enjoyment of a legal right. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. Texas definition of rioting is? Absurd. It's very hard to come up with activity that seven or more people could engage in in public that wouldn't be a riot exactly and, and 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 fall within the ambit of it i mean the only upside to this law is that it is so poorly written that it is essentially unenforceable but that doesn't stop law enforcement from arresting people right and and in fact that appears to kind of be the point is just to give them carte blanche to arrest mm -hmm. anybody at the scene and if you need to dismiss charges later, then it's easy and justifiable. And yeah, and it, it's hard to even know how meaningful the requirement that you've committed a crime to be arrested <laughs> is in any, in any case, because there's so many problematic offenses in our code. But yeah, it's not good. I'm going to say intentionally anti-democratic. 
Mm. You know, this this law was created in 1965, um, explicitly in reaction to the civil rights protests of that era. For those who aren't aware of the history, Texas had a ruthless record of backlash against the civil rights movement here. Mm. Um, the NAACP was essentially banished from Texas courts in the late 50s. The only example of civil rights era protests we really had here was a uh, uh, Students um, at a uh, historically black college in Marshall, Texas, Wiley College, um, had had a visit from Martin Luther King Jr. The administration mm -hmm. had opposed having King there. The students had him anyway, and afterwards they went and sat in at the Woolworths downtown, just like you saw in Greenville or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And the backlash was intense. They brought in the dogs and the fire hoses. They fired the faculty member who had invited Martin Luther King and then they um, that summer they fired every single faculty member who had not su uh, supported the administration in opposing his visit oh my god and were completely ruthless and so um, there really were no civil rights protests in, in East Texas after that and that's the context in which this statute was written is that we're just going to give the police tools to completely crush this movement in Texas. Oh, I, I should add that um, that the governor at the time of that Wiley College incident specifically red-baited the, the fellow who had invited Dr. King and fired him as a communist, like mm. explicitly for that reason. So, you know, this has some ugly roots in terms of Texas backlash against civil rights seeing it used today as sort of oh we'll just round everybody up and arrest you in the civil rights protest yeah. even though we're going to have to dismiss it later is an it's an ugly parallel mm. and and I, I i feel like this probably shouldn't even be on the books anymore there's nothing that's truly a riot that isn't already an, a, a crime yeah no i mean if you're rioting you're clearly engaging in disorderly conduct like destruction of property destructing a peace officer there's there, be something there, assault you know who there are a lot of things that are going to be in there and that and it does make sense to break it down according to the conduct that someone actually engages in instead of a catch-all crime that is sort of nebulous Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment called The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. Disability Rights Texas, Texas Appleseed, and several other groups have approached Texas's largest school districts asking them to eliminate police in their schools. Is this the right approach? It absolutely is. I, it, when you talk about abolishing police, I, school police are where I would begin. Yeah. In Houston, in particular, they have more police officers at the Houston School Independent School District than they do counselors and social workers combined. Mm. And they have a huge number of police officers and their number of counselors and social workers falls far below the national recommendations for, for what they should really have. So we've also seen great research here in Texas showing that having a police officer on campus increases the number of low-level offenses that students are charged with 
just because mm-hmm. the cops are there and has to do something. So I, I think that's a great place to start. An analysis of data on phone calls published in the New York Times found that 1% of calls to police involve violent crime, and police departments spend about 4% of their time overall investigating violent offenses. A third or more of calls address non-criminal topics. Do these small numbers surprise you? No, not at all. Um, I think it's it's been well known for a long time that the public is constantly calling on law enforcement to perform services that have nothing to do with a crime. And, you know, it's, it's really just showing how they're being overused and overextended. Now, there are sort of non-violent crime associated things that they can do, like patrolling or identifying, you know, conditions that are conducive to crime that, you know, aren't within that category. But you really want to keep law enforcement in the crime prevention sphere as limit them as much as possible. Okay, last one. The Austin City Council recently passed a resolution declaring they have, quote, no confidence that current Austin Police Department leadership intends to implement the policy and culture changes required to end the disproportionate impact of police violence, end quote. A majority of council members have expressly called for the police chiefs to resign. Scott, why is Brian Manley still Austin's police chief? I am utterly baffled. I thought that once the city council did this no confidence vote and the majority of council members had spoken out, that that would be it for him. And at this point, the city manager, Spencer Cronk, seems to be digging in his heels. And it may be that he has to go for for Brian Manley to go. I'm amazed that it's gotten this far. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or listen to it on my blog, Grits for Breakfast. If you listen to our podcast on Google Play, you'll be able to hear it on YouTube Music after you transfer your account, which you should definitely do. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen.